turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, we have been going through the book of Revelation since the beginning of the year, and we are today making our way into the second half of the 70th week of Daniel's vision, what is commonly referred to as the tribulation period. And, um, and so today we begin our trek into that period. We have looked over the, the months at the book of Revelation, at the things that were, the things that are, and currently we're in the section of the things that shall be. We saw um, John being on the Isle of Patmos, and how he re- revealed the revelation the, from Jesus Christ, the apocalypse, if you would, of Jesus Christ. That's what the word revelation is, the word apocalypse. So when you ever hear that word apocalypse, that's what it really is, it's the revelation. Um, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then we saw how Jesus gave them a message to the seven churches that were in Asia. And then from there, we took a little break. We looked at um, prophecy throughout the Bible that give us a foundation, and then we continued on into chapter 4 of Revelation, looking at the throne room of God, and then we saw also in the throne room how the Lamb was presented, we saw that there was the, the scroll that was in the hand of him who sat on the throne, and no one was found worthy to open the scroll, and so John wept, but the elder said, don't weep, because one has prevailed, and uh, so we saw how that was a a picture of Jesus' deity, because no one in the heavens, on the earth, or under the earth was able to open a scroll, but Jesus was. The lamb that was slain was able to. And then as he began to open up the scrolls, began to open up the seals, we saw how the four horses came along, and then we continued on into the other judgments, if you would, which really, in a sense, aren't judgments, but it's man's judgment on himself. The things that are consequences of our actions that come along that God knew about and God proclaimed um, in the book of Revelation would be. And I say all that because as we go through the seals and as we go through the, the trumpets, we need to understand that many of the things that we have seen are really nothing more than consequences of man wanting to be God. Of man wanting to, to run his own affairs. It's not until we get to the final seven um, plagues that we'll begin talking about in a few weeks from now that God begins to pour out his wrath upon man. And remember as we looked at the, the sixth seal, we saw how men claimed that it was, you know, they were hiding themselves in the caves and they said, woe is us because now it's the wrath of the Lamb. And, and I said at that time, listen, you know, it's really not the wrath. That's not, you know, people said that the, that the rapture, the harpazo of the church has to happen before that because here's the, the wrath of the Lamb being poured out. But it's not God saying it. It's unbelievers saying it. And they don't really have a clue of what the wrath of God is all about. And, you know, part of Revelation, uh, Romans chapter 1, remember when we looked at that, that most of what, what we consider as the wrath of God is passive, and that he just hands us over to ourselves and says, fine, you want to do it? You do it. And so that wrath, it starts to be poured out, and we'll look at that again a little bit this morning. And so, as we saw then, these things, these terrible things that are going to go on on the earth. And then we saw, a few weeks ago, the mighty angel that came. The one who was in the clouds, who was clothed in the cloud, had a rainbow around his head. He had the, the, the bright, shining, uh, bronze, burning uh, feet and legs. Um, he had one foot standing on the, the sea and one foot standing on the land. And um, there was the seven thunders that uttered as well. And we're told that as he came, that the mystery of... God would be complete, and I shared at that time in Revelation 10 that I think that that was Jesus coming down, that with the sounding of the, of the trumpet, that that point, that the, uh, that's when the rapture was occurring, that's when the church was being taken up, when we talk about that, and we moved in into chapter 11 last week, where we saw the temple um, in Jerusalem, now I say that because today we're going to be looking at another temple, we'll, we'll get there in a moment, but we saw the temple that was in Jerusalem. And it was the beginning of the 70th week. Because we're told that there were two witnesses that would, would minister, would witness in Jerusalem at that time as well. And their, the time of their ministry would be 42 months, 1,260 days, 42 months, or three and a half prophetic years. And so that was the beginning of the, the time, the first three and a half years. 
again, it is amazing to me. And I, I again, I, I, I don't mean this arrogantly. I just sometimes I, I continually look at things over and over and over again and, and ask myself, am I missing something here? Because you know, it's just amazing to me how many people want to, that that, is, that isn't part of the tribulation period. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's really weird to me. Um, and I don't get it. It's, they're very specific numbers, especially people who are literal in their interpretation of the Bible. I think 42 months is literally three and a half years. And we're going to get into the second phase now where we're told that the beast is going to be reigning for 42 months or three and a half years. Three and a half plus three and a half, at least in old math, is what? Seven years. And, and we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel today. And we're told that the Antichrist is going to make a, a covenant with Israel for seven years. And in the middle of the covenant, he's going to, he's going to break it. So there's two passages, two breaks of three and a half years. So I, I just see consistency there. So if you see something other that I don't see, I'm very open to to, to, to being taught and to, to, to you know sword playing here and iron sharpening iron. But I just I keep going back over and over and over and over again, saying to myself, you know, I don't want to be out in left field and, and thinking differently and just because of myself. And people start to wonder if, if I'm a a mid trip rapturist then because. Clearly it has to be mid-trib if it's not right there at Revelation 4. And I go, no, I mean, very clearly, if, if that's Jesus in Revelation 10, and the mystery of God is complete, then everything is, is there. So, so anyways, I, I just put that out there. That my, my desire is to be humble in presenting these things. We're in Revelation 11, in the middle of Revelation 11, and um, we're looking only at five verses today. But you know me well enough, we could be here five hours for five verses, um, and there is a lot here that I want to talk about, and first of all, there's two main areas that we want to talk about, and that is the, um, the song of the elders, and then the opening of the temple, and so first, briefly if you would, we want to talk about the song of the elders, but because we're, we're told, beginning of verse 15, it says, the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Do you, you kind of picture Handel's Messiah there? And he shall reign forever. I just love it. Every time, every time. It just plays in my mind every time I read through that. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord, God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry. And your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints. And those who fear your name, small and great, should, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And so we see, first of all, this song of the elders and how they, they're, they're, they're declaring the praise, if you would, to God. And first of all, we want to talk about their motivation. What are these guys motivated by? What, what caused them to sing this song of thanksgiving and praise to God? Anyway? The coming of his wrath? Not necessarily. That was part of it. But his sovereignty. The sovereignty of God. They have they've come back and they have looked to God, understanding that at this point now, God is going to take control of the earth one more time. God has allowed, over the years... Things that just kind of go on. He's given man, if you would, a, a subordinate sovereignty. Okay? I, I don't know how you say that because people say, well, if it's not sovereignty, it's not sovereignty. But I think that God's sovereignty is, 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 is big enough to allow man to be able to have a choice and to, to allow man to be able to move. And uh, it's kind of like the picture I have is the king that's on his throne who looks down at, at my hovel and I'm getting ready to have spaghetti and he says, no, I don't want you to have spaghetti. So he sends his troops down, and he takes away the spaghetti, and he, and he makes us eat hot dogs. Okay? Now, does the king in, in that domain have the right to make me eat hot dogs if he wants to? And the answer is yes, he does. But honestly, how many kings care whether you're having spaghetti or hot dogs? Not many of them. Okay? But if there was an important, if there was a reason for, for me to have hot dogs rather than spaghetti that night, then the king would have every right to do that. And... And I take that illustration as mundane and just simple as it is, and I bring that back to God. There are things that I believe that God in His sovereignty has allowed 
to go on in history. That's called permissive will. Okay? God doesn't have to control every word I speak and every action I make in order for him to be sovereign. Can he override anything I want to speak? The answer is yes. Can he override any action that I'm about to take? And the answer is yes. Why? Because he's sovereign. But what we see here that's getting ready to happen in Revelation 11, or that is happening, and why the elders are beginning to, to declare their praise is because God at this moment is snatching back full control. The kingdoms of the earth are becoming his kingdoms. Do you get it? Do you remember when Paul in, in, in Corinthians says that the, the rulers of the world didn't understand who Jesus war, was? Because if they had understood who he was, they wouldn't have what? They wouldn't have killed him. They wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. In a sense then, God, though it was God's plan from before the foundations of the world were laid that Jesus Christ would come and he would die for our sins, yet he didn't necessarily force the rulers of the world to make that decision. They made it how? Of their own will. And we're told by God's inspiration through Paul that had they known it, they wouldn't have what? They wouldn't have crucified him. And so at this moment, we were told that God's going to snatch back the reins, if you would. He's going to take it all. Sovereignty is fully back right now. And that he is going to rule. And we're going to see over these next um, chapters, as God's wrath is going to start to be poured out, what we really do deserve for our actions. There are two primary terms when we talk about God's goodness, if you would. We talk about mercy, and we talk about grace. Grace, we like to talk about all the time. Grace, grace, God's grace. We really don't sing about mercy. You know, mercy, mercy. Because grace really is, 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 is more me-focused than mercy is, if, if you would. And I'll, I'll share my thoughts in a moment. Grace is when I receive what I don't reserve. That's a good thing, isn't it? Because I get, Right? I get, I get, I get. So grace is gifts. I get what I don't deserve. Mercy is when I don't get what I do deserve. And honestly, I don't want to focus on what? What, you deserve. what I deserve. I just, grace, grace, God's grace. Give me grace gifts all the time, Lord. Give me grace But just don't remind me what a, a vile, a wretched thing that I am and what you're holding back from me that I really do deserve. Well, here, as we get into this, we begin to see this. And for these elders, these 24 elders, they begin to see the sovereignty of God here. And they see God grabbing control. And they're just overwhelmed with They're, they're, they're filled with uh, praise in this. And so we see in Psalm chapter 2 that God had, in years ago, had declared through the psalmist these days what was going to happen. It says, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh. Against Yahweh. And against his anointed one, his Messiah. Saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Yahweh shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. And distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have forgotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those, are all those who put their trust in him. Over these next so many chapters, we will begin to see Psalm 2 laid out. The kings of the earth have raged against God. What did we just see at the very end of our, of our, um, our talk last week? When we saw that the, uh, the, the two witnesses were taken up. How did the, how did the world react? Say again? They well, they cheered when he died. When he died, they cheered. 
and they gave gifts to everybody else. But when the two witnesses were taken up, when they were resurrected, when they were brought back to life, and then they were caught up in the clouds, what happened? Yeah, yeah, they started believing. Not well, believing in their mind, but not believing in their heart. They had great fear. Fear fell upon them. They recognized that something happened. They recognized that God was working. But the question that I left you with last week was, but did it change their heart? Did they commit themselves to Jesus Christ? Maybe some did. But as a whole, the kings of the earth did what? They jeered. They plotted a vain thing. I mean, that's why we're here in chapter 11. That's why the, the book of Revelation didn't stop. You know, everybody saw the two witnesses go up. They recognized their sin. They understood that they were wrong all this time. The world fell in repentance at the feet of Jesus. And the book of Revelation ended. Right? Sad thing is it didn't happen that way. It's not going to happen that way. God has already declared how it's going to happen. He knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. The future has already happened. We just haven't experienced it. That's kind of a weird concept, isn't it? Anyways, and so, so in Psalm 2, God prophetically had it declared. What's going to happen? God's going to speak to them in his wrath. His wrath will now be poured out upon these, upon these nations, upon these um, judges. And God's desire all along, come down through it, you read wrath, 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 judgment, 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 right? But in the end, what's the whole point of even prophetically talking about his wrath? The call to repentance. Do you see it? God's wrath, the pouring out of God's wrath, the call to God's wrath, is always a call to repentance. God says, now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. I've shared this in the past, like, but it's really... It was, one of those sound bites that just the Lord has continually allowed in my mind. But Jerry Smith, years ago, many, many years ago, in a, in a men's breakfast, teaching us from uh, Psalm 16, I believe it is, where it says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And how foolish it is to, to reject God. But his next comment was the sound bite. So if it's a fool who said in his heart there is no God, how much greater a fool is he who knows that there is one and acts like there isn't? If we look at the unregenerate and go, Oh, fools! How can you be so foolish? What about you and I who proclaim to know him and then live our life like we're not going to give an account to him? Like 2 Corinthians chapter 5 doesn't say that when I am, leave this tabernacle, this earthly flesh, this earthly tent, that I'm not going to stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. That's Paul who said that. And Paul said, therefore knowing the terror, the fear, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, I persuade men. So we can sit there and, and look at these passages now that we're going to look at, and we're going to talk about the wrath of God, and therefore I know, as we're going to look at, that I've been spared from what? The wrath, right? I'm not going to go through the wrath. And so I can look at this as saying, oh, this is great instruction, this is for the world, oh, the world needs to hear this, oh, my unbelieving neighbors, they need to hear this. But I ask myself the same way, do I think that I won't give an account? for the neglect, for the abuse of the cross of Christ that I live in my own life. Not that I'm going to walk through his wrath, but there still will be an accountability. And so as I consider this, and as I look at these things, and as we go into this, this section, if you would, of Revelation, I really, for me, for Bob, I, I believe that the whole Bible is written for my learning. And I don't want to discount certain portions and say, that's not for me anymore. Because I'm not going to go through that. But what was ultimately the desire for God when he had that portion written? And how can I apply that to my life? Not just to his life, or her life, or their lives. Do you understand? The Song of the Elders, we see their posture. It's the same posture that we've seen every time we've been introduced to the 420 elders. 
every time we see the four and twenty elders, what are they doing? They're falling on their faces before God. I ask myself, I ask you, when's the last time you fell on your face before God? I mean, on your own, without somebody prompting you. You just had a vision of God, you, you, you thought on God, you considered God, and it overwhelmed you so much that you fell on your face in humility before God. Their physical posture. I've showed this before, that was great that I didn't have to get down and do this again in front of everybody, because it's on a, on, a, on a picture, right? The Muslims got it. That's what it means to get down and bow, put you on your face before God. Not saying the Muslims have a right religion, they've got a false religion. But you see Muslims in groups, publicly, bowing before God. When's the last time you were at a, a prayer service and we all got down on our faces before God? Got down on our knees before God? I know spiritual. It's not physical. Physical can be a show. So spiritually, I'm supposed to bow in my heart. You know, it's amazing to me. This is New Testament. New Testament. It's not Old Testament. It's the New Testament. It's part of the New Covenant. And they're still bowing. They're still falling on their face before God. In fact, they're in heaven. Now, I think that would be of great impact. So the physical posture was that they were bowing down. Their spiritual posture is proskuneo. The word proskuneo, the word for worship there is the word proskuneo, which means to fall prostrate. Yeah, isn't it amazing? So they fell on their faces and they prostrated themselves. That's what, the, that's what it means when it says it. So physically they fell on their faces and, and spiritually they prostrated themselves. So either way you want to look at it, it's both sides, physical and spiritual. They fell on their faces before God. There was great humility before God. We have a week of prayer and fasting come up, coming up in October. You don't have to participate. We don't want it to be a legalistic thing. Um, historically, we haven't had a great turnout. I'd love to see this place filled. We don't have revival meetings. We don't bring in special speakers to tickle our ears. I believe revival is me changing the way I think before God. I believe that revival then is when we come before God and we humble ourselves before Him and we ask God to change the way we think. That's why we have a week of prayer and fasting. That's what I, that Bob interprets as revival. And it's a teaching tool for us. For, that's why I do it. To help rem remind us that prayer and fasting is of a great part of our lives. Or supposed to be a great part of our lives. And so we do it corporately together. And honestly, last year we didn't do it. I felt, I, I, I forgot to plan it. I felt pressured at the last minute not to do it. And I feel over this past year, I've sensed it. You know, I've sensed the fact that, um, that there has been spiritual struggles that we haven't been strong going through. You know, when Jesus told Peter to pray that you don't fall to temptation, and when he fell to temptation, why did he fall to temptation? Because he hadn't been praying. You know, it's not a matter that I've got to start praying now. It's a matter that I should have been praying. And so the, the elders have got it down pat. Their posture, they, they fell down flat. They fell on their faces, and they worshiped God. What about their attitude? What kind of attitude did they have in their, in their song of praise? How would, you, how would you sum it up? What do they start off with? We give you what? We give you thanks. It's a song of thanksgiving. The, the elders are, are giving thanks to God for who He is and for what He has done. And so... Um, they were filled with an attitude of thanksgiving. We have many passages throughout the New Testament in which we are commanded to have this same attitude. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 to 7. says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, okay, so this is an assumption, right? That you've received Christ Jesus. That means that you're what? A believer. Saved. Okay, whatever um, term we want to put it. As you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and establishing the faith as you've been taught by him, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving should be a characteristic that pervades the life of a believer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Why? 
Because it's God's will. You want to know what God's will for your life is? It's to be one who rejoices, prays, and gives thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Philippians 4, 6-7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. With what? With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. And so the fact is that these, when these, these trialsome times come in my life, rather than being anxious about them, rather than being worried about them, I'm supposed to be what? Thankful. I'm supposed to understand where I can go to get answers. And so I'm supposed to go to God with prayer and supplication, yes, for strength, yes, for help, yes, for assistance, yes, for, for, um, for what do you call it, inter, uh, intercession, but rather when I go, I'm supposed to go with thanksgiving as well. Now, Marsh and I have been debating um, the, the whole context of um, being thankful in all times, with all, in all things. And does it mean that I'm thankful for the situation itself? Or does it mean that I'm thankful that I know that I have a God who's what? In control. And so there's a, that, that struggle that goes on both times. And, but for Bob, for Bob, I'm thankful that I have a God who's in control who can work all things to what? Together for good to me, hopefully, who is a lover, a lover of God and is called according to his purpose. But I go the next step partially. I, I, I like to think I do this theologically. I know I struggle with it practically. Okay? And that is that if my God loves me, and if my God cares for me, and if my God only permits 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, if he only allows the, the temptatious, the troublesome, the, the situation, that, that periosmos in my life, okay? Remember we talked about the trial, the temptation being one word, and so it's a trialsome situation. That he, that he only allow a trialsome situation in my life that he knows that I can what? I can bear up to, right. So if I know that he will only allow those things in my life, then I know that he's allowed it in my life knowing that I can do what? Stand up to it. And so if I can't stand up to it, that is that an indicator of God or an indicator of me? It's an indicator of me. And, and so, so I, I, I'm trying to come to the place. The, um, if anybody read uh, The Hiding Place or listened to The Hiding Place? Okay. And so you got Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy. Do you remember the, the time when they were in the um, they when they got sent to uh, Dacknell? I think it's Dacknell. Is that where they went? No, Ravensbrook. Ravensbrook. They went to Ravensbrook, and they went in, and there were fleas all all over the place. And and Betsy wanted to said that we need to thank God for the fleas. And and Corey says, now you've gone too far. I mean, I you know. I just cannot be thankful for fleas. They're, they're, I mean, it's like saying be thankful for the mosquitoes in Georgia. Okay? And, and so, um, and says, I can't be thankful for the fleas. But what she finds out later on is that, you know, the guards never come in and the guards never bother them. And she's told one day, do you know why the guards don't come in? No, I, I, I don't know. I've always wondered that. Because of the fleas. And so they've had the opportunity to minister to these women and to read their Bible without being obstructed by the guards, the Nazi guards who would destroy the Bible and, and put them in confinement if they knew that they were teaching in the Bible. But they never found out because of the fleas. And when she found it out, she laughed and said, Betsy, you're right again. I need to be thankful even for the fleas. Now, that's an area that Bob struggles with. But if I trust God, if I fully trust Him, then I know in His sovereignty, as His child, He has protected me. And He has allowed something into my life for a reason. For a purpose. And as Devin was sharing in his testimony earlier about Akia. You know, whether a key is a believer or not a believer, potentially not a believer or whatever, but could God be using even this 
act, not that God caused the Kia to go kill somebody, but could he even be using it in his life to put him into prison, allow him to be in prison where he knows what? He won't get any more trouble, but he could do what? He'd get saved, be a witness to grow in grace. Now, I don't know all that. I mean, I picked something because Devin shared this morning that's way out there. But can God do that? That's the question you have to ask yourself. And the answer is yes. God is that sovereign. And if I can turn around and look at somebody else's life and proclaim it, then I need to be able to proclaim it in my own life. It's easy to, to teach it to somebody else. You know, it's one of these times you're, you're going to teach it, and you say, you say what, then what? I'll say, God, what are you going to teach me through this, right? But, the unbelievers, they're not recognized by this. They're not known for their thankfulness. The wrath of God, are we getting ready to get into that wrath of God portion here, right? So, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Suppress the truth, in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, wait a second, what do you mean they knew God? God placed it in their heart. These unbelievers, they've got this, this light. Now, I don't want to sound like a Quaker here, but, but God place them, even in a time of creation, God's got a void in their life that cries out for God. And they're filling it with something other than God. They're suppressing the truth. They hear truth and they say what? I don't want it. Even when they see the two witnesses go up, after being dead for three and a half days, all over the internet, or whatever it is at that point, right? The whole world knows it. They're giving gifts. Everybody sees them dead in the streets. And no doubt in my mind that net cams are pointing right at them. And so the whole world at the very moment can be doing what? Seeing them be resurrected. And then risen up. And we're told that great fear fell upon them. And yet they do what? They suppress the truth. They reject it. And so although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, neither were they thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you know what the very first steps of the rejection of God, that the sovereignty of God, and thankfulness to God for who He is, is the futility of your thoughts. Your thoughts become darkened. Your heart becomes darkened immediately. Because you don't recognize who God is and what he's capable of. And so you begin to analyze things how? According to your own wisdom. Through your own glasses. Rather than looking at them through the glasses of God. And when you begin to analyze things through your own glasses and you decide that this is how I need to do things, you begin to walk the slippery slope. And you make yourself God. And God then, we're told later on in the chapter, that God hands them over to their own lasciviousness. He hands them over to their own weakness, to their own abilities. And I think that's what we see in our culture and in our world today. So, the next thing we see is we move into the opening of the temple. The opening of, of the temple. Because on the heels of this, on the heels of all this thanksgiving and praise, we're told in verse 19 back in Revelation chapter 11, then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Now in this, there are three things we want to look at. First of all, we want to look at the doctrinal significance of the opening of the temple. We want to look at the practical significance of the opening of the temple, and then the prophetical significance of the temple. First of all, in the doctrinal significance, why is it important doctrinally that we're told this? I mean, there's a reason that God has placed this, and it's exciting for me. And that is that there is a declaration of a heavenly pattern. There, are, again, are a lot of people who debate the existence of the temple, not only in Jerusalem, but also in, in heaven. You know, this was just a Jewish thing, but now we're the church, okay? And the bride of Christ and all these things. 
But the fact is, the Bible talks very clearly about this temple, this tabernacle, if you would, all the same word, temple, tabernacle, that is in heaven. And way back in the days of Moses, when God was speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he told Moses to make an earthly tabernacle, an earthly tabernacle that was patterned after the heavenly. And so you can see in Exodus 25 and Exodus 26 that God has told Moses, make it according to the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its sowings, furnishings, just so you shall make it. And so, so and so forth. All these verses that are there talking about the pattern. And then we get into the um, first Kings where Solomon is talking when he, he makes the first temple. We go from a tabernacle, which was what? The tent to a, a hard tent, if you would, a hard shell tabernacle, right? We have the, the temple. And interesting, Solomon recognizes, this is really neat for me, Solomon recognizes as he makes this thing that this is still just a what? It's just still a facade. It's, it's really not, I mean, because it's not where God's going to live. He says, then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from outside and they are there to this day. Now, important point before we move on to the next phase here. Where is the Ark of the Covenant at? In this, in this pasture right here. It's in the Holy of Holies. Okay, we know that. I'm, I'm just bringing this out, okay? Can it be seen? No, it can't be seen. Because it's behind the veil. The only thing of that, the Ark of the Covenant that can be seen is what? The poles on either side. Okay? Go on to verse 12. Then Solomon spoke, Yahweh said he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then drop verse 22. So he's talking to Yahweh. He's telling Yahweh, I'm building this thing. Then, then Solomon stood before the altar of Yahweh in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward the heavens and said, Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you. You keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. And so there's this understanding that this glorious building that Solomon has, has built is still what? Inadequate. Inadequate. Yeah. And so, but it gives us the picture again of the pattern that is in the heavens. Do you get it? And so as there was with the tabernacle, there were two primary courts, two primary segments. There was the outer place where the priest could minister daily, but there was also then what? The special holy of holies, where they could only enter into once a year. And only throughout the year, the only thing they would even know anything about that section was what? that there were four poles, if you would, or two, and the either end of them was sticking out of the, the curtain. But now we go into the New Testament and we see the true tabernacle. In the book of Hebrews, where we're told, in beginning of verse 8, it says, Now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So what are we told? That even in the New Testament, there is the understanding that there is in heaven a true tabernacle of which the earthly was patterned after. Not just the, the physical furnishings, but even the priesthood. Do you see it? Even the priesthood concept comes from the heavenly. Something for us to kind of ponder and, and, and think about. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest, since there are, there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. 
who served the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed, for when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, for God said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And so the point there is, is that Jesus Christ is a high priest, and he is serving not just the shadow sanctuary, but he is serving in the true sanctuary. We're going to look at this in the next passage in just a moment. But he goes on and says, because if he was serving the earthly one, he would what? He wouldn't be serving. Does anybody know? Why? Why wouldn't Jesus really... If, if Jesus came as a priest to serve the earthly and not the heavenly, why could he not be serving? He was in the wrong priesthood. He was the wrong tribe. He was the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. And so that's why his priesthood is of Melchizedek and not of Levi. And that's the whole purpose in chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews is to show how Levi's priesthood was subservient to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And that Levi, in Abraham, gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And so therefore Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Chapter 9, beginning of verse 1 of Hebrews, which read, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. I mean, why do you think they're talking about an earthly if there's not a heavenly? For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which has had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So again, we have this, this tabernacle, this earthly tabernacle that is built upon the, the, the picture of the, the heavenly. And in, the, in the, this earthly, there were two parts. There was a sanctuary where people could mill around mill, where the priests could serve, but there was an inner part. And in the inner part was the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, we're tracking with that so far? Later in Hebrews 9, he says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, or remission of sin. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, that is, the blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. This was great yesterday. I got it. I didn't get it before. I never had it before. I got it yesterday. When Jesus died, he didn't just die for my sins. Do you know what he also did with his blood? He purified the temple in heaven. Do you get it? Read it again. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of the sins. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. With what things? What are these? The blood of the bulls and the goats and the rams. And so, therefore, that the things that are in heaven, what were they purified with? With God's own blood. Isn't that phenomenal? I just, it just kind of made me stop in my tracks. That is so cool. Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the truth, but into heaven itself, the very temple of God, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as a high priest enter into the most holy place year after year with blood of another. He would then have to have been suffered often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as it is appointed for men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly await for him. 
he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Now, as we go on then into this, in this doctrinal side, um, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Because I want to, this is so so neat to me. What do we see when the, the, the temple, quote-unquote, is opened in heaven? What are we told in verse 19? Is seen. The Ark of the Covenant. What is the Ark of the Covenant always referred to as well? When they go in and the, and the, and the priests sh- uh, sprinkle the blood on it during the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The mercy seat. It is the seat by which God looks at his people through it. And so when God opens up at this point, think about what's happening. He's getting ready to pour out his wrath, okay? But what he's showing us, even when the wrath is about to be poured out, is God showing us what? His mercy. And that Jesus Christ died for you and for me and for every individual on the face of this earth. And when he died, his blood went up to sanctify the, the, the factual, the, the real, the true. But it was also like the priests going into the Holy of Holies. His blood was shed and placed upon what? The mercy seat. The copy? No. The true. It's there. And there is the encouragement for you and for me. And that is that God's mercy seat, God's Ark of the Covenant, is there. But, as we're going to look at, as well, in this, when we get to the prophetical side, what's contained in that Ark is also important. Now, let's look at the practical significance. This is kind of interesting. Because the timing of when this happens. And that is, Antichrist, remember, we're going to be looking at this in just a moment from the book of Daniel. Antichrist has made a seven-year covenant with the children of Israel. And there's going to be the three and a half years of what? Peace and safety. Well, that's because of two witnesses around the earth, right? (laughs) But in the middle of of that covenant, what's Antichrist going to do? He's going to break it. And then what's he going to do? He's going to declare himself God. And so we read in Daniel 9, 27, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And then chapter 12, And from the time of the daily sacrifice is taken away, until the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Do you know what 1,290 days is? Three and a half years. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, this is 2 Thessalonians, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, even by spirit or in word or by letter, as if from us, and as though by the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for the day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And so in the middle of this, the way I understand this, in the middle of this covenant, the seven years, when he breaks the covenant, he is coming into the temple, and he's setting himself up as, as God. And just as he's doing that, God is opening up the true temple, and he's revealing the the true mercy seat. Let's go all the way back to Solomon. Is the temple on earth really the house of God? And the answer is no. And so what a neat thing. God, again, goes back to Psalm 2. God looking at how the, the kings of the earth are raging against him. God looks down in, what does it say in Psalm 2? Remember? God looks down in derision and laughs, and says, you guys missed it. This is the real temple, right here. And so the prophetical significance. First of all, it is the portent of the last plagues. As we're going to look at in the weeks to come, the angels who come with their sickles, 
Do you remember that when we looked at that in, in uh, Revelation 10? We looked ahead in Revelation 14 and saw the, the angels who come with their sickles to reap from the earth. Where do, the, where do they come from? They come from the temple. When the angels who come with the bowls of God's wrath come out to pour God's wrath upon the earth, do you know where they come from? The temple. And so I think it's interesting that at this moment, what's happening is the opening up of this temple is that God is, again, snatching the kingdoms, opening up his reign, his, his, his temple, and saying what? I'm here. And now I'm going to reign. And I'm going to bring judgment, true judgment, to the earth. And then he begins to pour it out. So there's a portent of the final plagues. Now, in this as well, what I said I was going to, to talk about before, in that Ark of the Covenant, what was in there? Aaron's rods, the manna, and then the Ten Commandments. The tablets were the Ten Commandments. This is the true one. But I believe that as the pattern was to have certain things in there, so the true has as well. And I don't believe that God's law was ever destroyed. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Man, ultimately, apart from Jesus Christ, will always be judged by what? By the law. That's exactly right. The law is a schoolmaster. It's a tutor. It reveals sin in us. It's not for us to hate, but rather it's for us to embrace. And Paul, that's what Paul said to us. So am I, am I saying that the law is bad? No. I'm saying the law is good. Why? Because I wouldn't know what sin was if it wasn't for the law. And if I really love God, I want to what? I want to be like him and be without sin. And so the law is not evil. The law is good. Unless you don't know Jesus as your Savior. Unless you've not received the eternal sacrifice. Unless you're still walking in your own ways, thinking that you're going to do it by yourself. And you will be the recipient of God's wrath. This is what's going to wait for those who walk apart. This is the earthly pouring out of wrath. Again, remember what I said before about the, the, the hell and stuff like that. I mean, I know I'm not going to go through that part of wrath. But even those who have died without Christ, though they're not going to go experience this physical, they're not living here, but we're told that, that the lake of fire itself is a place of what? Of wrath. It's a place of torment. So it's important, a final plagues. And there's also then the presence of the thunderings. It's really interesting that right when the, the, um, the temple is opened up and the ark can be seen, revealing, I think, the blood of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness, the redemption that we have, covering the mercy seat, covering the, the, the law, if you would, the effects of the law. Then we also have the thunderings. And you have in your sermon note sheets that other times that the thunderings were there. Every time the thunders thundered and there were the lightnings and the peelings. And sometimes there were the earthquakes. Sometimes, like here, there is the pouring out of the hail. It was a picture of God's wrath to come. Each time, God's wrath was going was to get ready to be poured out upon men. Even in Revelation 4, when God is revealed in heaven and there's the thunderings, God speaks and he's preparing the earth for what is about to happen. This is the final warning to the earth. The final call, if you would, to the world to repent. He gave them the witnesses. He gave them the witness. He gave them the testimony. He gave them the last great sign. But I want to submit to you that God has given even those people who will be here on that day, who will bypass the witnesses, that God has given them even a great, greater testimony. It's here.
all written down. They don't have to wonder what's going to happen after the witnesses are resurrected. You and I know it. And it's here. All they've got to do is pick up your copy or my copy after we're gone. And I believe there are people, people who do that. And God's mercy seat is still God's mercy seat. Christ's redemption is still Christ's redemption. The sad thing is, is that people will express the truth. And they'll reject the Creator. And they'll reject their Savior. And so, I ask myself and you, have you taken part in the eternal sacrifice? Or will you be a recipient of the pouring out of God's wrath that we're going to be looking at? Listen, I pray that if you're here today and if you really don't know Him as your Savior, I mean, I could look around and I could say, oh, you know, same old, same old, you know, we all know each other. But we don't in our hearts. And if you're not His, I pray that you would become His. In Revelation chapter 21 we read, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of life, the fountain of water, of life, freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. If you say you're his, if you say you've taken part in that eternal sacrifice, then as we've seen in some of these other passages, there will be things that will be indicative in my life and in your life. We talked about in Sunday school as well. The question is, are they? I'm not one to try to make you doubt your salvation. But I do want to call you to true repentance, to true salvation. And if it's not real in your life, God knows. Jesus said there are going to be some who come to me that day and they're going to say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not do all these wonderful things in your name? And I'm going to say, depart from me, you son of lawlessness. Lawlessness. Being without law. For I never knew you. Would you be described as being a thankful person. How often do you give thanks to God? Are you thankful for His reigning over the affairs of men? Is your life described by murmuring or thankfulness? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your grace. I thank You for Your mercy. Lord, I thank You for the testimony of Your Word. I thank You for the mercy seat of Christ for the salvation that you've given to us. I thank you for your sovereignty. For I know, Lord, that you govern the affairs of men. Lord, I pray that you would help me to walk in submission to you. Help me to walk in thankfulness. Lord, not being anxious, but looking to, but looking to you. Lord, I know that you will give me direction and discretion if I would but seek it. You said that the beginning of wisdom, or the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise instruction and knowledge. Lord, help me not to be a fool, but to receive your instruction, to receive your knowledge. Lord, help me to rejoice, though, as well, in the fact that I'm not going to go through the, the, your wrath that's going to be poured out upon men. But Lord, not to do so in a prideful way of rejoicing, Lord, help me to, to see those that are about me in their needs. Those specifically that don't know you. And to be bold in my witness. To be bold in my testimony. That they will not have to walk through these days. But Lord, I know that as we shared earlier that some water and some sow. But it's you who give the increase. So God, I pray for the increase. I pray for your, your kingdom to be expanded. I pray that you would be exalted. Lord, I pray that you would help each of our homes to be focused upon you. To be places that truly your temple is seen. 
the place of your presence. That our neighbors would be able to look at our homes and see that it is a place where God is honored. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be thankful people, not just with our tongues, but with our very lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.